You're listening to the DNB Supply Show podcast, your number one resource for living the country lifestyle. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, coming to you from my place in the country to yours. Well, hi, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking all about producing wine in Idaho. And you know, it's quite a story. And we're going to be speaking with Dr. Ron Bittner, the owner of Bittner Vineyards uh, from Sunny Slope out near Nampa, Idaho. And it's quite a story as we look back to when he first started it back to the early 80s when Idaho was not really known as a wine growing region all the way up through today to where now we have three American viticultural areas here in the state of Idaho including Sunny Slope uh, where Dr. Bittner and many other people are producing great wine grapes and great wines out there. So I hope you enjoy getting to hear about really a piece of Idaho agriculture that we can all be very, very proud of. Well, joining me today is Dr. Ron Bittner, the owner of Bittner Vineyards. Dr. Bittner, thank you very much for coming on and agreeing to talk to us about winemaking in Idaho. Uh, no problem. Uh, I am a co-owner with my wife, Mary, but uh, a small vineyard winery operation here in southwest Idaho. Well, I, I think it's great, and I've, I've read quite a bit about you and Mary in preparation for this interview and, and see how long you've been basically bringing wine production to Idaho, and I think it's great everything you're doing and continue to do, and I'm really excited to talk to you all about how this works and what's going on today with wine production in Idaho. Absolutely. Well, I think what I'd like to do is start out just by asking you about you and Mary and kind of your journey and how you got involved in this. Well, I'm an, an Idaho native. I grew up in a little town of Midvale, Idaho, north of Weezer. Went to College of Idaho. That led me off to Purdue University, where I began studying native bees and then did my PhD work at Utah State with the alphabetical leaf cutting bees. I returned to Idaho in 1976 and uh, worked with a couple of uh, corporate companies around here in alfalfa seed production. But uh, I found this property out in Sunny Slope, 1979, and my cousins had grown up here. So this Sunny Slope area of southwest Idaho has always been a fruit-growing region. And San Chapelle, the winery here, was just being established uh, and built by the Sims family, spearheaded by Dick Sims. And uh, I give him full credit for really, you know, the one who came in and started the uh, the wine grape industry here. I... Uh, planted my vineyards in 1981 because San Chapelle was being built and they were looking for some more grapes for their winery. Their first winemaker, uh, Bill Broach, was my neighbor and he came up the hill and pointed out to me the steep hillside that I had bought for the view overlooking the Snake River Valley was actually a, a premier site to grow wine grapes uh, and especially some Chardonnay grapes here on this hillside. So I knew nothing about wine grapes up until then. I grew up in a farming community, I, I've always loved the dirt. And uh, so we decided to give it a shot and we planted uh, 15 acres of wine grapes in uh, 1981. So, yeah, yeah, that's when it all started. Now, why was the slope so conducive to, you know, why was that premier wine growing or grape growing area? Well, here in where we're at, especially in the sunny slope area where it all started, you know, we're just between 2,600 and 2,700 feet in elevation. They're very uh, high elevation grapes. That's good in some ways, bad in some ways. We can be exposed to very cold temperatures late in the spring that can frost the buds, or we can have an early frost in the fall that uh, freezes the leaves and we, we can't make sugars mm-hmm. uh, to make these really fruit-forward reds. But on these south-facing hillsides out here along the Snake River, we have what 
it takes in the major regions of the world, especially in the cooler climates, the, the cold air drifts away from us. It, it flows down to the Snake River. Snake River takes away the cold air from us, and that allows us to have a fairly extended grape-growing season here. So that's why most of the plants, there are areas that are other growers are starting to grow uh, blocks of wine grapes. But you know, in the world, if you don't have a lot of heat during the season to ripen your grapes, you have to be areas where you can keep the frost away. And that's why these hillsides along the Snake River are premier for that. The other thing that over the years uh, I was involved with uh, helping establish the first American viticulture area, which is a federal designation that you have to show why your area is different than any other area in the world, why your grapes, your Cabernet grapes would taste differently here mm-hmm. than they would in eastern Washington or in France or whatever. And that that was a process that took us several years, but that's primarily based on the terroir or the soil. And uh, our soils are old Lake Idaho uh, sediments, more recent uh, volcanic activity, and even more recently, the, the Bonneville floods that came through and stirred everything up. So even though I've got Cabernet or Chardonnay planted here, they're going to taste different as a reflection of the soil than they would in Northern California. So a combination of the climate that we have here, the soils we have here, uh, created this AVA, which we finally got in 2007. So yeah, we've had the AVA for 10 years now. And that put us on the road to where people actually thought we were a serious wine grape growing area. And I'm sorry, you said it was an AVA. What does that stand for? That stands for American Viticulture Area. And it's a federal designation. Uh, You have to apply for it and literally do a lot of research showing why your spot on earth is different than another spot on earth to grow grapes. There's three or 400 in the U.S. The majority of them are in California right now. Uh, I think Washington State, gosh, they've got 10 to 14 AVAs. Idaho, I think we have three now. We've added two more uh, over the last couple of years. Northern Idaho and just north of Eagle. Now, back in 1981, other than your neighbors, the Sims, how many people in Idaho were growing grapes and then growing grapes for wine production? Uh, Not a lot. When I started in 81, there was a group of about five of us that uh, were the original four or five guys that got started. Uh, Dick Sims started it, but you had the Pintler family involved. You had Bill Stowe involved out at Indian Creek, uh, myself. Oh, we had uh, a couple of other guys around here, Steve Robertson. So there was a small group that got started, and uh, that was in the early 80s. And we formed our organization uh, later in the 80s, and then we actually formed an Idaho Wine Commission as we got into the 90s that because we could see the growth that we were getting. So, But I mean, there was five or six uh, spearheaded by San Chappelle and the Sims family. Uh, the rest of us were small at the time. I'm still very small. Pinler started Skyline Vineyards and Sawtooth Winery, which is you know the second largest winery in the state. 1997, my winemaker and I hooked up. 1995, Greg Koenig, and I can talk more about that in a minute. Well, let's do this. I want to take our first commercial break, and then when we come back, I'd like to ask you about some of the challenges that you faced when you were first getting started. Does that sound okay? Sure. Travel back in time for an immersive and inspiring lesson in science, technology, engineering, and history at the Warhawk Air Museum in Nampa, Idaho. 
At the Warhawk, you and your family will find some of the most iconic classic planes found anywhere in the West and learn how American aviation technology evolved from propellers to jet engines. And while you're there, you'll come to know the personal stories of the veterans whose commitment and sacrifice helped make our nation what it is today. For passes and more information about visiting the Warhawk Museum, go to warhawkairmuseum.org. Doc Martens became a household name in 1960 when their first work boot with a revolutionary air cushion sole rolled off the production line. Since then, they've been supporting the workforce from factory floor to construction sites with lightweight, flexible footwear that keeps you comfortable and safe with tons of toe protection, waterproof leather, and slip-resistant soles. Doc Martens Work Boots, industrial strength for any job site. Pick up a pair today at your favorite D&B Supply. All right, Ron. Well, now that we're back, I wanted to ask you, so when you were getting started back in the early 80s here in Idaho, growing grapes for wine production, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Many. (laughs) Mostly it was, you know, there was not a lot of experienced people here in Idaho that could help us. The Sims family started it and, you know, they, they were their own agronomist. But, you know, I would say we were fortunate to have friends from Washington State who were starting in, in the business already Book Walters, Wade Wolfs, established names up there, but uh, they made the effort to come down here and help us. And so we really got some good technical support uh, from those guys. The cost of establishing a vineyard can be twelve to $15,000 an acre. So a lot of us started small, did most of the work ourselves, and uh, that was an issue. But what we did have here that some states don't have is most years we have plenty of water. Uh, we had the right weather out here. We had a labor force, uh, you know, our Hispanic labor force. Uh, I, I often tell people they wouldn't have that first glass of red wine if it wasn't for our workers who were out there when it's hot or when it's freezing working in the fruit industry or working in the fields. But I had a gentleman that was with me for 35 years. Uh, he's in his late 80s now, but uh, he was born and raised in Texas. But, you know, he, he helped me a lot. And he's been retired a few years, not many, he still would come out at Mr. Ezekiel Campos. But uh, I was fortunate to have some experienced workers like that that taught me what I needed to do. But again, uh, what Idaho was faced with is uh, 1996, we had a very harsh cold winter and it froze our grapes vines to the ground and we essentially started over in 96. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past winter, the uh, 17 winter that I've got weather stations here. We've got 10 of them in the area out here. I mean, that first 10 days of January at minus 18 probably killed half the acres here in Idaho. And that was, we have about 13, 1400 acres established with new acres coming on. But in certain areas, it, it took it to the ground. That they'll not have any crop this year. And I have about four acres of my 15 that with no crop on it this year. So that's always been the downside of growing in a cold climate area the upside has been you know we've had a labor force here because of our agriculture in canyon county and that's allowed us to do some things but to develop really ripe fruit flavors the grapes have to hang a long time and but they have to have green leaves to do that so we can let the grapes go clear up into thanksgiving especially our red grapes the cabernets the merlots mm-hmm. and we get these really fruitful wines out of that I had an experience uh, five or six years ago. I was uh, uh, chair of the Wine Grape Growers of America, which is, was the big 
you know, it's a, all 50 states, the wine growers, most of them come from California. But one evening uh, at dinner with these gentlemen, Mary and I were there in D.C. with these guys, and uh, we'd all agreed to uh, bring a bottle of Cabernet that night to taste from the different areas. And uh, it was kind of a smackdown with Cabernets. And uh, at the end of the evening, these guys, and these are from well-recognized vineyards in, in California, said, you know, Bittner, you can play with us. Hmm. And that told me because I'm not a, I'm not a, a wine connoisseur, or a wine drinker. I, I understand growing and flavors, but it told me that we could grow as good a grapes here in Idaho as anywhere in the country. I spent ten years in Australia as a bee biologist, and I fell in love with their style of wines and how they made wines. And but I know that here in Southwest Idaho, especially, we can grow premier wine grapes. Absolutely, and and you had brought up the weather and this cold winter that we just experienced this last winter. And, I was reading an article about you in the Farm Bureau magazine, the Idaho Farm Bureau magazine, oh, yeah. and they mentioned that after this last winter, you had to actually take a chainsaw to your Chardonnay vines. So for those of us who don't grow grapes, I, why would you have to take a chainsaw? What did you have to do? Well, my uh, Chardonnay block I planted in 81, it was you know going to be 36 years old this year, and we had two feet of snow out here, but everything above the freeze line froze that vine so that there would be no nutrients going up into the vines this year. And so it meant we were essentially starting over. So uh, some of my vines were four, five, six inches in diameter. So that's why we had to use a chainsaw, cut them off, take them off the wires and start over. Now, the winter was very harsh, but that two feet of snow also insulated the roots of these vines. And my thermistors underground said, no, we never got below 40 degrees, two feet down. And what that told me was after I cut off the dead vine above it, I would have suckers from the original roots. So I still have the mother roots, and they've come up. Uh, we've trained them. There's no fruit on them this year, but we're training them right now to produce a crop next year. It won't be as big a crop. It won't be three tons to the acre, but I might get a ton, ton and a half next year. And that's what a lot of the guys out here are going through, just retraining their vines, and we'll miss part of you know, we're harvest this year, and we won't have as many grapes. Some of the wineries are having to source grapes from Washington State this year because they didn't have as severe winters. But that's farming. You know, some of the younger guys, I've been doing it for 36 years. I, they've had a couple of years in a row where they're kind of starting over, and they're kind of scratching their heads. But, you know, I've been in it for 36 years, and, uh, you know, the fruit growers around here got hammered. Uh, uh, there was a late spring frost that killed a lot of uh, new seedings of different uh, sugar beets and those kind of things they had to start over and uh, you know that's farming yeah that definitely that definitely is one of the hazards of relying on mother nature to cooperate with you for your business exactly well now i wanted to ask you and i find it really interesting that in the early 80s when this was getting started and you were starting out that we didn't have the internet and this was not a wine growing region yet so when it came to equipment and things like that, where did you have to go and, and how did you even find out what you needed and where would you have to source that equipment from? Uh, well, the equipment consists of a tractor. you know, and So I bought a little random tractor I remember started with because my block below the house is, was five acres. I helped farm another 300 acres just uh, uh, west of me here. There's about 90 acres of it left that I still farm. So... Uh, the owners of that bought the bigger equipment. I needed more, I needed a disc, and I needed a sprayer. And 
I, I grew up around equipment, and so especially the small equipment. So that that wasn't an issue for me. You know, sourcing wooden posts. We're fortunate to go over to Parma, and they were already producing posts of different lengths and sizes that we could put in for our trellis. Uh, D&B helped us early on. Uh, they were very uh, instrumental in ordering up stakes, posts, wire, clippers, all of those kinds of things that we needed. And, uh, you know, nearly everything I got came from D&B uh, at the first. And uh, they were very instrumental. And in, in, because they had stores in Washington and Oregon, they knew what we needed down here and they brought mm-hmm. it down. That, that part wasn't that hard to do. Yeah, and we had the labor to do it. Let's take another break, and when we come back, I've got some more questions for you about how it was when you were first getting started out. Know what boots work as hard as you do? Georgia Boots, available to try on for size at D&B Supply. If you're on your feet all day, Georgia Boots knows the feeling. That's why they've designed exclusive comfort systems that cushion and support down to the bottom of your soles. While on the surface, they shield you from tough conditions with one of the most durable leathers out there. See why they earned the nickname of America's Hardest Working Boots and pick up a pair of Georgia boots at your favorite D&B Supply. For cats and kittens with carnivorous cravings, D&B carries Merrick Perfect Bistro Grain-Free Cat Food, all-natural high-protein food that's a great value. Merrick Grain-Free Foods are cooked in the USA with the best ingredients for complete nutrition. There's nothing but the good stuff in the recipe, with no corn, wheat, soy, or byproducts. And without the grain, it's easier for your furry friend to digest. Merrick Grain-Free Cat Food, available at select D&B Supply stores. All right, Ron, well, I wanted to ask you, so when it came to growing wine in Idaho, when this was all beginning, uh, was this an experiment, or was this something that the research had been done and and you and, and your colleagues in this business knew that this was going to be uh, a great wine-producing region? Well, you know, fortunately, Dick Sims started this, and they were already commercial fruit growers out here. And Dick said he was looking for another, told me that he was looking for another crop that didn't require so much labor because there, were, there was labor issues back in the early 80s in California. And so he was looking for a different crop. I had a friend in the Air Force, uh, uh, a Trefethan family member, and they had a big... Uh, winery operation in California. He came up here and, and he and Dick talked it over and, you know, the Sims family jumped right in and uh, Bill San Chappelle, which is the mothership of all of this around here. And uh, we sort of followed their example. There wasn't a lot of, you know, the University of Idaho has uh, had a few fruit growing people, but there was no viticulturists here. And But I, uh, from 76 to 1981, I was an extension specialist in entomology with the University of Idaho. And so I tapped into uh, that. Uh, early on, we had Essie Pillai, Dr. Essie Pillai out at Parma, who, you know, he's a world-class, uh, works with wine grapes, fruit trees. He's developed other industries based on his background. He's an Iranian fellow, but he's just, I think, the world of him. Great researcher. We're fortunate to have him here in Idaho. Early on, we approached... Uh, Senator Larry Craig, who is a classmate of mine from Midville High School, and, and Larry grew up a farmer, and I used to work on his family's farm out there, and Larry said on appropriations at the time, and he said, what can we do to help Idaho become a world-class industry with wine grapes? And I said, well, University of Idaho needs its own research center and USDA center out at Parma, and he literally brought two full-time positions 
because he was on appropriations uh, to Parma. And that research background that we've had between the university and the, the USDA out there, uh, even though we're small in acreage, uh, less than 1,500, we still have world-class researchers helping us. Now, they're tied into a network, especially in the USDA, in Oregon, Washington, Cornell. I think there's 28 or 30 USDA wine grape and table grape researchers in the U.S., but we have two of them here in Idaho. So a lot of that's because of my background in research, and I understood the importance of research and keeping money flowing into ag research here in Idaho. Uh, fortunately, we had Senator Craig at the time that uh, understood that and helped us develop a research system. Absolutely. And now fast forward to today. So now here in 2017, how many different varieties of wine grapes can we grow in Idaho and what types of wines are we producing throughout the state? Well, we what part of our research uh, monies that we got, we established a, a bridal trial area out at Parma and we hired Dr. Krista Shelley that came in. Gosh, she's been here 15 or 20 years. And we, we know that we can grow 50 different varieties or clones of some varieties out there. And we have all those records now. The main grape we started with was the Riesling grape because we knew it was the most winter party. And that's what the Sims family experience was. But uh, over the years, we've learned Riesling and Chardonnay are great wine grapes that are easy to market. Viognier is another white grape that Idaho is getting recognized for. We've got some reds that are you know, at first we didn't know how to grow the reds properly. And we had a consultant that the commission hired, I helped hire to bring in in the early 90s, Richard Smart from Australia. And he showed us how a new trellis system that allowed us to get more sunlight on our red grapes, our Cabernets, our Merlots, our Syrahs. And once we learned how to do all of that, we started producing this world-class fruit. Now, what that takes is a lot of hand labor because we actually strip leaves and and we don't want to sunburn the grapes, but the workers know how to, especially on the small farms, uh, do leaf removal. And But we learned that uh, over the course of years. Carraz is a great grape. A new grape that we're growing here in Idaho is the Tempranillo, which is a Spanish red grape, but it's the favorite of the Basque community. And I've had a lot of Basque friends growing up here and went to Spain several years ago to look at how to, we wanted to grow the Tempranillo and how uh, we wanted our winemaker, Greg Koenig, to make it. And so we had a you know, group of people who wanted our wine. So Tempranillo is a really great grape we're growing right now. So we've got about 10 or 12 varieties or some other varieties that some of the farmers are trying around here. I, I've got a neighbor. I planted a Tempranillo grape on his place in Cab Franc four years ago. And what a lot of people say, well, I have this piece of ground and I want to grow wine grapes. Well, that piece of ground better be someplace where the grapes aren't going to freeze or the leaves will freeze. His one acre, he had $12,000 invested in it. And he does most of the work himself, but that's in trellis, in water, and in the plants, and hoeing and weeding and taking care of it. But we have yet to have a glass of that red wine because it takes five to six years from the time you plant a red grape. You'll start harvesting some the third year and more the fourth. But when you harvest it and put it in a wine barrel for two years and you bottle age it for up to a year, you're looking at you know five or six years before you get a return on a red grape. Mm-hmm. And those are things we've had to learn over the years, but that's why I really caution people. Everybody comes to me and says, well, I've got this acre, that acre I want to plant. And, and, you know, I just tell them that an acre of grapes is 800 to 1,000 plants. You have to touch those plants five times during the season. Are you going to do it? Are you going to have the labor to do it? And again, what are you going to do to market it? Uh, The main reason I have a small winery is over the years, I've learned that and farmers learn this all the time. You're growing a crop, then you hand it off to somebody else. And 
you don't get it paid as much as if you were following it through to the end and doing you know, a product. All right. Well, let's take another break. And when we come back, let's talk about your work with Greg Koenig. Smart clothes are all the rage in Silicon Valley. But for us active Westerners, smart doesn't need to connect to the Internet. It just needs to work right. Smart wool socks do exactly that. They're made of merino wool that doesn't itch. They're machine washable and dryer safe. Merino wool keeps you at exactly the right temperature, wicking away sweat so you're dry and warm when you need to be. They're much thinner than traditional wool, so no need to go up a size in your boot to fit your socks. Smart wool socks, the smartest thing you'll ever do for your feet. Slip into a pair today at your favorite D&B supply. Did you know that a horse's top line plays an important role in how that horse performs, looks, and feels? That's why Neutrina offers top line balance in select horse feeds. Available at D&B Supply. Not all feeds are created equal, and not all feeds can improve a horse's top line. It took years of research and field trials to develop this unique approach to equine health. So look for the top line balance logo on select Neutrina horse feeds. For a healthier top line, stop on by D. B supply for top line balance from Neutrina. I came back from Australia in 1995 and Greg Koenig had just moved here and he approached me about buying some of my Cabernet grapes. And uh, for 22 years now, Greg has made my grapes and he's into wine. I, I, I'm not a winemaker. Greg Koenig is my winemaker and he gets help from Martin Tudition uh, in the cellars there. I came back from Australia with styles of wines that I wanted made that I found that I liked down there. But Greg started making his beautiful cabs, cab Shiraz blends, Chardonnays, Rieslings. And uh, we started winning all these awards back in the late 90s, uh, gold medals in New York, gold medals all over the country with his Cabernets. Uh, I'm most proud this past season in San Francisco, international competition, I, along with some other Idaho wineries, did very well in 7,000 wines from around the world. And my Tempranillo got a double gold. My Riesling got a silver. My Late Harvest Riesling got a gold. And when you do these international competitions, they don't know the wines are from Idaho. And they're blind judge. We don't have anything to do with them. We submit them. They go into a class of Cabernets. You've got five judges that just score them. And when they really like them, they give you that double gold. And uh, like I said, I'm very proud. I... Uh, Houston Vineyards over here, the Merlots have done very well. We have 55-plus wineries here in the state now. When we mm-hmm. started out, there were two or three. And what you're seeing is some really world-class wines coming from here. You now have the urban wineries in Boise. They you know, they source their food from us and sometimes Washington. But Cinder, Talias, you know, a lot of these uh, young winemakers, a lot of them are women, are just putting Idaho on the map with the wines that they're, they're making now. We've got Scory out here, which is another run by a young lady. It's a Boise State graduate. So I couldn't be prouder of what's going on in Idaho right now. We really are growing right now and being recognized in a lot of articles and and judgings where our wine's the best of show around the country. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about how the uh, the reputation of Idaho as a wine-producing state was growing, but it sounds like uh, it's having quite an, uh, of an impact. Yeah, it is. I mean, I... Like I said, uh, when you enter these bigger competitions, uh, you know, they don't know they're from Idaho. And they don't just say, oh, they're made from potatoes or something. But <laughs> at the end, when the names are released and they're from all over Idaho here, it's, it's, it's exciting for me. I'm an Idaho native. And like I said, I've been on, I still belong to Wine America, which is a, a national winery organization. And I'm as proud as anybody to show off any Idaho wine back there. So we're getting a lot of recognition uh, right now for the wines. This past winter was a harsh one. It, it 
people don't realize that it's, you know, it's going to impact the growers have to pay more for the grapes or that I'm not going to have as much fruit for my 2017 vintage. Mm-hmm. But uh, it used to be very hard to talk restaurants into carrying an Idaho wine. Now they come to us and we're pretty selective. Uh, Bittner Vineyards is a small production facility, 1,500 cases of wine. There's 12 bottles per case. We sell 90% off our deck. Last year, from May till November, we had 5,000 people walk through our tiny little tasting room here. And so we're being recognized as a region. I, I, you know, I can't tell you how many people from outside of this area stop by our little tasting room. Mm-hmm. And we have an organization out here, the Sunny Slope Wine Trail, that's looking off of grants and tastings and stuff. And you're seeing signs up everywhere. But not only is it a wine grape industry, you're, you're seeing uh, other food-related types of industries developing in this region, especially in Sunny Slope for foodies. I have an acre of French black truffle orchards, and it's not producing it. So we've got hops growing around us. We've got the cheese people around us. We've got uh, Peaceful Belly Farms moving in out here that are really known for their high-end quality fruits. You know, So there's just a group of us working on turning Idaho, the Treasure Valley, into a food destination. We see that every day from the people that are showing up here now that we used to worry that nobody was coming, and now we're swamped a lot of weekends. <laughs> You know, and laborers, we're small family owned. It's my wife and I, and we have uh, six kids between us, but two of them are close by and they help us a lot. Uh, one's involved in marketing and, and the other one is involved in tasting room and events. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's fun to have this, but it's it's fun to people have people come and talk about Idaho and, and the recognition that we have now. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take another break. And then when we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about the process of actually making wine. Does that sound all right? Sure. D&B knows that life in the West is defined by hard work, innovation, and constant improvement. These values made the West what it is today. And these are the values that have made Wrangler the defining Western brand since 1947. Wrangler apparel is designed to feel good in the saddle, look sharp at the rodeo, and work hard on the ranch. That's why Wrangler fits with classic Western heritage like a boot in a stirrup for clothing that's a good value and steeped in western values stock up on wrangler at your favorite dnb supply a well-worn pair of danner boots has become a hallmark for hard-working and hard-playing people in the west and everywhere else for that matter find your next pair of long-lasting great-looking made in the usa danner boots at dnb supply hold a danner boot in your hand and you'll notice the handcrafted precision try it on and you'll feel the difference test it against the elements and you'll appreciate the value of a product that's built to last from classic hiking boots to handcrafted work boots to fashion forward looks to fit your daily life stop on by dnb supply to try danner boots on for size all right ron well now that we're back i i wanted to for our listeners kind of let them know how this process works a little bit. So I was going to ask you about one of your specific wines. I was reading about one of your wines on your website called Menopause Merlot, and I read the story behind (laughs) the title. That's pretty funny. But as I was reading through it, I saw that it contains cherries and chocolate as well as strawberry and tannins. How do you infuse those flavors into the wine? How does that actually happen? That's kind of a confusion. You know, those are chemical flavors that show up in fruits. Okay. So we don't infuse anything. And that's terminology that, you know, a wine writer wrote about it. And so, you know, when you 
is something. That's a Merlot grape. Typically, the, the Merlot grape has black cherry flavors, dark flavors. And so that's what they ascribe to. That's what they taste when they taste. Somebody else may taste it and they may taste something a little different or they may taste what they think is chocolate in that. So uh-huh. there's nothing infused into <laughs> these wine grapes. Those are just the flavors that come along. I think the world just found out that I'm not a wine connoisseur. <laughs> no, I, those are questions we answer every day. We're, we're surrounded by apples and apricots, and they say, well, how did you get that apple flavor? How did you get that green apple flavor in your, your dry Riesling? How did you get the apricot flavors? No, that there's this, you know, those are just chemical flavors that all fruits have, and grapes have those too. And uh, depending on when you harvest, the flavors will taste differently. Well, I just want to say one more thing. The menopause Merlot was my life's creation of a celebration of a new life. Uh-huh. Uh, the 2013, we had a small crop. We only had 60 cases of them, like 750 bottles. We have a strong wine club. This is a, a wine club of people who first choice to take the wines we have. And uh, 60 cases sold out in one night. That's the first time for us. They, they, they signed up for it and uh, we charged them in all 60 cases. Gone. So people are coming to us now and they want this vintage of the menopause Merlot. And it, we just are already telling them this, the next day it's gone. Uh, some years we have 150 or 200 cases. We are a small production, but that's the importance to us of having a strong wine club, which is people who know us, we know them, and we treat them like kings and queens when they come out here. A little bit about the winemaking process. I was out in the vineyards this morning before I come back in. I'm getting my Chardonnay grapes that I farm. Uh, we're probably two weeks away from harvesting the grapes. Now, these grapes are going to go to a, a young lady who makes uh, Prosecco-style wines and uh, uh, Haley Mender. And, but she wants those picked at 18% sugars, which is a little earlier than the others because it makes bubbles and all those things that she wants in her wines. And so we'll start picking here in three or four weeks. Typically, we're picking the grapes from uh, towards the end of August to our late harvest grapes we pick in November. So during the season, I'm walking through the vineyards with my winemaker, Greg Koenig, or Martin Fugit. We're tasting the grapes. We're looking for certain flavors we want to have, and we can taste them now and, and determine what it's going to taste like two years from now in the bottle. And so I, I've learned that over the years walking around with the winemakers. There's a lot of art to it. Uh, the sugar started around... 20%, the grapes go through beration and they change colors from green to red if it's a red grape. Uh, uh, but I also learned that robins show up about 10. And we don't want to pick till our 24 or 25. And I used to get out there with a refractometer and measure sugars. But now I just, when the robins show up, it's time for me to walk out there, taste the grapes. Do the seeds taste like popcorn? Do my Cabernets, are they getting away from those bell pepper tastes uh, as a grape? So that's how I determine along with Greg Coning, my winemaker, and Martin Tradition, today's the day we want to pick. So there's a lot of coordination going on, you know, getting our grapes down to the Koenig facility. Now, Greg Koenig, like I said, he approached me and started making some wines for us in 1995. And he, we've been partners for 22 years now. And he just built this beautiful world-class facility down below us. People have to come out and see that Koenig facility. And, you know, he's 20,000 plus case wines. Now, but he, he makes small lots for some of us and his and for five or six different wineries out here. But building a winery is a very expensive proposition. When we pick the grapes in the field, we deliver them in trailers down to his facility and they have to be 
destemmed, which means uh, the grapes are plucked off of the green stems because the green stems will add a flavor you don't want. He still does hand sorting. He goes through uh, a, a crush system that presses the grapes and squeezes out the juices. Those juices flow, uh, depending on the wider grapes, into different vats or bins. The red grapes eventually end up in French oak and American oak barrels that cost anywhere from 300 to $1,200 a barrel. And they aged. He has to go through the whole process of looking after those grapes for two and a half to three years. So it's a very extensive progression of things you do. And I'm quite happy to be the farmer, work with Greg, tell him the style of wine I want and turn it over to him. And mm-hmm. he, He's put Idaho on the map with, with his wines. And now he's got this beautiful facility. So really proud of what uh, Greg Koenig and, and his assistant Martin Kedushin have done. And, and you mentioned the aging of the wine in the oak barrels. Is it true that winemakers will get their oak barrels uh, from distilleries like whiskey distilleries? It's kind of the other way around uh, what's going on right now. A lot of times we just buy brand new oak, and those barrels can be very expensive. And they, most of them come from France, some from Hungary now. So there's those expensive barrels. Uh, I know this last couple of years, uh, the breweries have been buying our used barrels to make beer in. Now, Greg Koning has a brother, Andy Koning, who's the, a distiller, and uh, he's doing these beautiful whiskeys and brandies and different styles, some vodkas. and uh, he he buys his own, so I don't know. There's not a lot of distilleries around here, but but Andy, uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, starts with new barrels. So usually, what happens after you've used a barrel for two to years, you can process to keep it going for about five, but then you trade it off and buy new ones. And there's always a process of buying so many new ones each year. But then a lot of these barrels used to be people could pick them up for planter boxes, but but now they're being used by uh, especially the breweries around here. There are only two or three distilleries in this area right now, mm-hmm. uh, Andy Koenig and, and Bardenay and some of them, but I, I don't know. I think they're mostly going with newer barrels. Well, now I wanted to ask you about honeybees. I know this is something that you're passionate about, and I see it on your website, and uh, we brought it up when we were talking off the air, but tell us about your work with honeybees. Well, I can tell you about my work with bees. So, this is my bee lecture. Uh, in the world, there's 20,000 kinds of bees. There's 10 kinds of honeybees. In the United States, we have 4,000 kinds of different kinds of bees. Uh, in Idaho, we probably, we've identified at least 400 different kinds of bees. I work with all the other kinds of bees, uh, the non-honey bees of the world. My PhD work was with the alfalfa leaf cutting bee, which has helped make Idaho the number one producer of winter hardy varieties of alfalfa seed in the world. My master's thesis was with the blue orchard bee. That's a bee that we use in, to pollinate orchards, and we use them more and more of them in California on almonds. So that's my background. And over the years, people always assume that I'm, you know, they ask me for fresh honey. Well, the honeybee is the only bee that makes honey in quantity. Uh, the other bees are solitary. There's no queen like in the honeybee. They may nest around each other, but they gather the pollen as a protein source to lay an egg on and a little bit of nectar, but there's there's no honey being produced in large quantities. So that's my background. Now, I've had issues for about seven or eight years now where there's a condition called colony collapse where some years 40% of the bees disappear. Now, this past year was about 25%, but that's really not sustainable. And most people don't realize that there's a statistic out there, and I helped work on that years ago, that almost one-third of everything we eat, every third spoonful, 
starts with a honeybee or a bee pollinating a certain plant. And so we're very dependent upon bees for pollination, especially in this valley. We grow 150 different crops and 50 or 60 of them start with bees pollinating the crop. Alfalfa seed, clover seed, carrot seed, onion seed, all the tree fruits. I can go through a big list of crops that rely on bees. And, and that's why I, when I was growing up here, I didn't realize that. I was fortunate enough to be educated in the other kinds of bees in the world. They brought me back home. I didn't want to live anywhere else but Idaho after graduate school. They took me to Australia 25 times over 10 years to look at the bees down there to understand because the Australians wanted a little leafcutter bee because it'll pollinate a thousand pounds of seed in three weeks. Honeybees take three months to produce five or 600 pounds. That takes a lot more water to do that. So my little bee has taken me all over the world on my cork, it's on my bottle label, it's on my story. I've been fortunate that that, that bee is uh, in wine. I don't get a better life than that. I'm a strong component of working with the honeybee because it's still the queen of the pollinators. It it pollinates so many different crops. A lot of the other bees are specific to different families. So we need the honeybee. And what the backyard gardener can do is plant a variety of bee-friendly plants because honeybees are, are stuck on one source, like they're on almonds for six weeks, and that's only one protein source. And it's like having the same Big Mac hamburger every day. I love them, but you can't you can do that for six weeks and feel good. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, the backyard gardener needs to, you know, I don't know if this is a and b show, but go, they, they've got uh, seed mixes of bee-friendly plants. And we all have to join in and helping the bees. Uh, survive because they are struggling right now. There's diseases they have. There are certain pesticides that we know are getting into the food chain. There's debate on some of those, but we all know there's a lot of evidence that just planting a variety of uh, flowers, it helps the bees, especially honeybees, but it helps all bees. Uh, around my vineyards, I've been able to do bees and wine. And so I plant a lot of bee-friendly plants. I plant a lot of native plants. I've got sunflowers growing everywhere right now. So that helps the bees. It helps beneficial insects. Uh, the one thing I'm most proud of is my vineyards are have a certification called Live. This is a third-party certification. It's recognized throughout the world. Uh, I do it through a group out of Oregon, but Live stands for Low Input Viticulture and Enology. And what that means is I don't spray my chemicals a lot or spray chemicals a lot on my vineyards. They're not organic, but you know I live with more weeds and I plant a lot of plants that beneficial insects build up on and attack. Uh, the bad guys out here. I've been able to do that because I have a PhD in entomology. I was Idaho's first integrated pest management specialist up at the University of Idaho. So, you know, I know when I look at a plant, a grower may see some bad bugs there and want to spray it, but I also can recognize that there's some beneficials about to hatch or lacewing eggs are about to happen. And I can visually say, well, I just need to wait another week or two weeks and I know I'm going to have beneficial insects here doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the bad guys overrun what I'm doing and I got to send a crew in and cut the crop off. But, you know, I typically spray one, two, a couple times a year. And the chemicals I use are soft chemicals. They don't kill parasites and beneficial insects. They're more targeted to just specific bugs. So, like I said, uh, in the bee world, I enjoy what I'm doing right now in some national organizations. And uh, the bees have been good to me. They've taken me all over the world. Idaho's got more honeybee keepers than most other states. My little bees are being recognized as they need to be there. People need to take care of them. Be careful what they're spraying. Uh, Don't just spray chemicals all the time, but plant more flowers for them. Because of those 4,000 kinds of bees in the United States, 2,000 of them nest in the ground. And Mm -hmm. people don't even see them. And a lot of them are very small. They're like little flies. But they pollinate a lot of plants, especially native plants. and, And we need them.
Well, Ron, thank you so much for for spending the time today and and talking to us about things that you're obviously passionate about. I wanted to ask you if the public wants to come and taste your wines and and see your facility, can they do that? Absolutely. You know, we depend on the public coming here. As a small winery, there are several out here. There's 10 of them around me here in Sunday Slope. We're not in all the stores. We depend on, we sell most of our wine from our little tasting rooms. And so, Bittner Vineyards has a website, and we're on Bittner Vineyards Facebook, and we have music and different things. So look those up. But uh, our summer hours uh, through the end of October are Wednesday through Sunday, noon to five. If you're larger groups, please call it the number because our deck holds 60 or 70 people, but it's got a beautiful view of the valley. But uh, no, we want people to come out, taste wines. My wife and daughters get after me, Dad, you're talking about bees, talking about wines, but uh, <laughs> bees are still my passion, and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk bees all day long. Excellent. And you also offer some other services as well, events as well as a bed and breakfast? Yeah, we raised four daughters, and we have a two-bedroom bed and breakfast, which is pretty much uh, full with either writers who write about us or guests, or sometimes our kids come visit us and they have to check in. <laughs> but we're small, but I, we're out here in Sunny Slope, uh, especially we're just surrounded all the little wineries we're not competing against each other i can call and ask uh, greg alger do you have any extra bags for wine and not run out i mean we all it's a group effort to build up we're still small but we are getting national recognition and, and we will be larger in the next few years well thank you again really appreciate all of your time and your passion and uh, best of luck to you out there in sunny slope i know it's going great and we'll continue to do so thank you sir Thank you all for joining us today, and here is to you and your pursuit of the country lifestyle, however you define it. For the DNB Show, I'm Matt Breckwald.